0: The better off read. My name's Pip Adam. Um this is oh boy. Sorry, I can hear my voice. Um I've got headphones on. Um yeah. Whoa. The self-loathing goes deep, doesn't it? Anyway, sorry, you don't need to um, hear me complain about myself. This is episode 113 of Better Off Read. This is the fourth in a series that I'm calling Beyond a Joke. Um, This year, I'm talking to writers and other artists about something that has made them laugh. Um, So yeah, we use this object as a bit of a jumping off point to discuss their work. Um, In this episode, I get to talk to Anthony Lapwood. Um, Yeah, so grateful um, that Anthony took some time to sit down and have a chat with me. He bought the most wonderful object. Um, it, it is still making me laugh. Um, it, it's a crack up, but it's also it's also so um, kind of ripe for discussion as well as being a crack up. It's, it's also very serious. Um, anyway, it's amazing. Very grateful. Um, we spoke, I spoke to Anthony the week that his book Home Theatre came out. Um, this incredible... Incredible book. Um, it's come out with um, Te hearing Waka University Press. Um, it is Uh, it's astounding it's structurally exciting it has um, intelligence it has heart Um, yeah it's 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 a magnificent book I just cannot recommend it highly enough Um, obviously you can get it in bookstores Um, it has a beautiful cover by um, Jonathan King there's also a trailer that goes along with it if you subscribe to the substack you will get a link to all that in the newsletter that comes through Um, if you haven't subscribed to the substack yet go on Uh, make my day um, yeah uh, oh no not like not in a Dirty Harry kind of way um, but yeah um, if you subscribe that'd be great to have you as part of the um, newsletter crew um, what else do I need to tell you um, oh um, Anthony's photo that you'll see is taken by Ebony Lamb and um, this is the second Ebony Lamb author photo we've had in a row and um, it just reminded me of what an amazing artist Ebony is Um, So Ebony has photographed me, I am a very difficult person to photograph, I hate being photographed, Um, but uh, the the experience was really lovely, it was really nice, and um, if you need a photograph, I would recommend finding Ebony, Ebony and um, yeah, amazing people, so many amazing people in the world, aren't there? Anyway, this is my discussion with Anthony Lapwood, Um, subscribe on Substack to Better Off Red, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for subscribing and yeah, have a really lovely time. Bye-bye. Hello.
1: I'm well, thank you.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming along today. It's really great to see you and thank you for your amazing book. And I wonder if we could start with you just introducing yourself as you'd like to do that.
1: Sure thing, Uh, so I'm Anthony Lapwood, I'm a writer based in Te Whanganui Atara, Uh, I've been here for about 20 years, moved down for uni when I was 18, Um, so that's over half my lifetime ago now, Um, but I was born in Tamaki Makaurau um, and raised in Tauranga from about 18 months old to 18 years old. and uh, a couple of my iwi actually come from tauranga so that's uh, Ngaitarangi and Ngati Ranganui um but i also affiliate to ngati fakawai as well um but yeah i guess uh, I guess uh, this is home these days i'm pretty comfortable here it's a, it's a city that suits me
0: Man, i'm really i'm really glad you're here especially like i don't know if it gave flight to this wonderful book like it's very yeah it's really great and tauranga is a lovely place
1: it is it's got its own charms um it's got a really good art gallery it's a yeah. small gallery but it really punches above its weight it's, it's I, I, we always try to make time to go there when we when we head back yeah
0: it's amazing yeah i i, I really enjoyed it. i had some time there a couple of years ago and it's just yeah it's a great place i really enjoyed it so you have chosen an object for us <laughs> and i'm um, sorry i'm laughing already about the object because it makes me laugh too much um but would you how would you feel about having a go at kind of introducing the object to us yeah,
1: sure. Um, it's, it's a painting, so I can spend a little bit of time describing it um, in case anyone out there um, isn't able to see it in front of them. It's, it's easily Googleable, hey, Google-able though. Um, yeah, so the object I've chosen is a painting called uh, Goethe in the Roman Campania um, by a guy called Johann Heinrich Wilhelm Tischbein. Um, fabulous name. It was painted in 1787, and it's, it's, it's quite well known. Um, it's a life-size portrait. It's about two metres long. Of, um, of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. So it's a sort of a story of two Johanns. Um, and Goethe, if you don't know Goethe, he's a gigantic figure of German literature. Um, and in this painting he's shown abroad in a, in a dusty Roman province um, with these sort of marble columns and archways dotted around and he's sort of reclining there on a, in repose on a broken wall as if it was sort of perhaps like a lovely chaise lounge. Um, and one leg is resting along the wall and the other leg is sort of pointing down he's got on a big comfy traveller's duster which is like a big cloak he has a big dark grey floppy hat and he's got quite a serious expression on his face and a a distant look in his eyes and I I think I've I've read he's meant to be contemplating the fate of the works of humankind Um, which is slightly ironic because uh, Tischbein, uh, the painter he came from a family of artists and he was very respectable Um, but this particular work um, is not exactly flawless and quite famously he mistakenly (laughs) gave Goethe two left legs. Um, I think it's such a strange and funny thing to get wrong. Um, presumably there was an underdrawing and he, he could have sort of you know, looked down at himself and noted that he himself had a left leg and a right leg and could sort of feed that knowledge into the painting. Um, it's, it's really hard to imagine how it could have, how it could have happened. Um, but there is a slight twist. Um, the, the main clue that Goethe's got two left legs is in the shape of the shoes. And um, There's a pair of lefties... Um, uh, but I've, I've, I've seen it um, said that the shoes uh, were not actually made as left and right pairs back then. They were sort of made with the same fitting. Um, which means that this kind of famous mistake, um, or alleged mistake, isn't a mistake at all, um, but just is, uh, you know, arises from our contemporary expectation of footwear. Um, and I love that such a basic misunderstanding you know, could have propelled this picture into infamy.
0: Yeah, I just I mean, there's so much to unpack, isn't there? Like um, this, yeah, I don't know. And I cracked up when I saw it, which surprised me. Um, can you remember the first time you um, saw this painting?
1: I can, and I can't. I, I there was a, um, a great masters or grand masters or European masters exhibition at Papa, um, you know, ten or twelve years ago. Um, and I don't know if this painting was on display there, but I picked up a reproduction of it at mm. that exhibition. I think there's a risk of me creating a false memory where I, I believe I've seen it, but I don't think I have. Um, <laughs> mm, mm, um, but mm, mm, I, I got the reproduction from there. I think I, I, I think I bought that on the back of um, this funny story about Goethe having two left legs, and it kind of tickled me, so I, I, I picked it up.
0: Mm. And, I mean, this is one of the things that I thought was really interesting is... Is this of a choice and this is why I was so grateful for it as a choice is that it's a visual joke and like we are talking only in sound today and I, I it, so because of the visual joke it made me laugh quite immediately like it was quite an immediate kind of laugh and it, it sort of overtook me a bit in a way that I didn't um, that possibly some jokes are more sort of thinkers you know and um, I was just wondering like does it does it continue to make you laugh? Like, having lived with it, it sounds like you've lived with this painting for a while. Like, is it something that can continue to make you laugh, or, yeah?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I chuckle every time I see it. It's actually, it's on the, our living room wall. It's, I've got a reproduction, it's about, I don't know, 20 centimetres long, so it's not the full kind of two metre um, <laughs> um, kind of glory of Goethe on the living room wall, um, 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 but I do but it's sort of behind a door so every time I sort of look behind that (laughs) door I see it and go oh and then I I have a little chuckle I mean it's it's sort of subtle you don't really quite know that there's two left legs to start with I don't think necessarily it's sort of you can sort of sense that there's something wrong with the painting um, but you have to sort of observe it for a moment to to, to understand what's going on Um, and I quite I quite like the fact that it is a a reproduction and it is a reduction like there's something in that there's the commercial aspect where you couldn't sell two meter long girders to people. They wouldn't <laughs> buy them, they wouldn't hang them on their wall, or not many would I would, but I don't think many others would. Um, but I, I quite like that there is this element where this grand painting has been reduced um, in the same way that the, the sort of the very serious intent of the painting has been reduced too. like at the they sort of mirror each other in that way that connect kind of, that commercial and that sort of um, semantic, I guess sort of aspect where it's just become a bit of a funny anecdote um so I, I quite like that that's um that it is just this little joke on the wall that i look at now and then um it's in that way i think it's it's sort of the joke of the left leg is is kind of a meme that sort of survived all other meaning in the painting um it's i mean it was ri- uh, not written um painted as uh, you know sort of a neoclassical work um and there's all these illusions and it's you know all the you know those those fallen marble arches are there for a reason and it's um you know you have to have a, a bit of an art history kind of background to even understand kind of what the painting's trying to depict and mm. it's um it's 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 kind of opaque um in terms of what the intended meaning is but this joke is very simple um and it's the thing that has survived most of all i think um you know, there's some criticism of the painting that it's it's a you know very derivative work and any kind of value it has is maybe in the kind of slightly slap slipshod kind of uh, direction that the painter took and you know um, um but the successful aspect is this is this weird joke that has sort of survived <laughs> um, wikipedia is really good it, um, the wikipedia page for the painting um is very valorous i think it it tries to really reclaim the um the, the standing of the painting and the you know, the, the very rich meaning that it has and the history of it. Um, and it has this, it, it alludes um, very briefly uh, to the um, anatomical infelicity of the left leg. It doesn't even, to point out the left leg, it just refers to an anatomical <laughs> infelicity. It sort of tries to brush the whole sort of scandal off. Um, um, so yeah, good on you, Wikipedia, for um, for trying to sort of claim that back. But I think if anyone's actually even going to Wikipedia to, to look at it, it's because they've, they've heard of this... this, this um, quite funny mistake in the painting itself
0: anatomical infelicity (laughs) it can happen it can happen um I think you've described this so well um the way that this the seriousness and the silliness and um or the seriousness and the laugh you know the I don't know um and it brings me to think about your book Home Theatre which I think it came out this week, eh? Hey? Like yeah, Thursday, the Thursday, twelfth of May. Yeah, yeah, which is so exciting, and it is an astounding book. Um, I want to talk to you later about the structure of the book, but I just I'm just trying to give a hint of it. You know, like it is this work that almost has connective tissue kind of taken away from it. So these amazing, quite distinct stories, but stories that are held together by you know, in an apartment building, and you know, relationships—they sort of sit together in this very beautiful way. But one of the things that I think was really interesting throughout is that there are these moments that are perhaps not of silliness, but are of sort of joy, in amongst these quite—I don't want to—I don't want to misrepresent the book as you know. Um, Solemn, but I think that it it is not afraid of dealing with serious issues. And I just wonder about that balance of joy and um, hardship, maybe. I don't know. Like, I I just wonder – I'm thinking particularly there's one beautiful scene where someone, you know, in a very tricky situation, kind of takes great pleasure in kind of bouncing on a couch, you know, like has this wonderful kind of bounce on a couch. And I just wonder why – Yeah, I just wonder about the choices you've made in some of those moments.
1: Um, It's a really great question. Um, I I think life generally is pretty tragicomic um, and there are shadings of one and the other kind of all the time um, and life can very quickly flip um, from one to the other. Um, So I think in as much as art might reflect life at all, it it can play in both those spaces at the same time. Um, And often I think, uh, when I think about what I find to be funny, It's often um, comes down to sort of how information around a scenario is kind of controlled. I tend to find that the more I know about something, the, the less funny it gets, the more, the more likely to be tragic it becomes. Um, so I think, you know, when you're thinking about sort of physical comedy, it, it very much relies on that careful control of context and, and the way that information is shaped and shared. I mean, in that example that you talk about, yeah, it's a... It's a slightly sad story. I did write it as a as a as a comedy in terms of this. It's got a funny voice to it, and mm, sort of the, mm. the formal structure of it is structured like a comedy, where it's a, a a situation is disrupted for a couple, and then they have to find a way to kind of restore a kind of order, and that for them is finding a, a new way of being in a community. Um, so that's kind of that formal kind of resolution of a comedy. Um. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think. It, uh, any kind of joke that's part of a story has to be doing work on behalf of the story it's like any element of story um so it's got to be there for a reason and that reason is usually something to do with you know revealing character or um you know adding something to the scene in the way of kind of um highlighting the sort of the drama of it or the tension of it or the relief of release of tension you know in this case the 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 guy is you know he he he's a bit of a big kid um and he's not necessarily got his eye on the ball all the time and that sort of has led to the misfortunes that this couple have um um uh, experienced in terms of losing quite a bit of money to a to a scam um so that kind of that childishness of him is, is kind of like a moment of of joy for him in this new um difficult situation, but it also kind of tells you something about him and you know how he behaves and how he interacts with the world and understands the world um and i think um, I think there's something too in, in putting contrasts together like if you have a little bit of the tragic and the comic or vice versa there is I think it starts to immediately imply change or the potential for change um, and, and therefore I think the potential for story um, so I mean with this with this painting for instance you kind of got this very serious sub- subject but this little kind of joke in there and I think the direction of that kind of change there where it's going from something serious to something silly um kind of makes the the comedy of it you know that much that much stronger um and, and you kind of uh, um you know you, it becomes a joke because it's backgrounded by by the sort of this very arch sort of seriousness um but the same could could uh, you know you could go the other way too when you start with something very silly that then becomes serious and the joke in that way um is, is sort of serving you know, potentially something that's got more of a tragic kind of flavour as well. So I think, you know, the the way that you can contrast two elements to sort of suggest a direction for a story or a flavor of a story, I think, is quite interesting to me as well. Um so I quite like trying to mix um mix opposites together in, in different ways in, in, in various stories.
0: Can you um this sorry, you've just um blown my mind a little bit, but this idea, um I really love this idea. Like this is my understanding of a short story, like when when I'm thinking about one is that it, it needs to have something that I, for want of a better word, I think of as movement, you know what I mean? And, like, one way to get movement is to have these moments of animation through these sort of, I don't know, like, slipshop kind of changes, which I think is really interesting. And this idea of structuring something using comedy... But do you think it's possible, um, this is a question that I've been dying to ask someone and you're the perfect person to ask. Do you think it's possible to use the structures of a comedy but it not be funny, if you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, this is a difficult question, but maybe if you could talk a little bit about, like, did you look at the formal structure of a comedy and use it as the bones of the story or can you talk a little bit about how that story came about?
1: That that was retrospective, actually, that aspect ah. to it. Um, but I did you know, when I sort of contemplated that, that that formal aspect. I thought, okay, well, that's a this is a story into which I can deploy that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I I mean, the story came out of a writing exercise, um, um, and I discovered the voice of Liv, who narrates the story. She's the wife of the um, of the husband who bounces on the couch. Um, and so a lot of it was driven by her voice. Mm. Um, there was sort of a basic setup where they had to go and buy a piece of second-hand furniture, um, which was great, had a scenario. It had to take place in a certain setting that I was writing the book around, so I thought, OK, well, there's a setting, there's a scenario, there's a voice, um, and it just mm. kind of unfolded mm. from there. And then I went back and thought, OK, the story takes a bit of a turn in the last part of it, mm. um, which is that um, that reestablishment of a new kind of order, and in this case, that, that kind of finding of a community that I... Um, uh, before I wrote that, the story was it felt quite unresolved to me, and I didn't quite know how to resolve it. Um, so, kind of thinking about that kind of comedic structure helped there. Where I thought, okay, well, this needs to take a turn towards something that's restorative, mm. um, and that helped to to finish that story off in a way um, that that felt satisfying. Um, but I think, I mean, to your uh, other question around, you know, can can things be joke like but not funny at all? Um, I, I think absolutely. I think. Um, one of the things I love about, um, say, satire, for instance, is they're full of really great jokes, but the target is something different. Um, mm, you know, the, mm. the, the, the intent of the joke and the target of the joke can be something very serious. Um, so you can be laughing along um, whilst understanding that a, that a, a, you know, an important critique is being made of, of something. Mm. Um, and I think that it's a really tricky thing to manage, well, I find it tricky as a writer to manage that kind of... Um, you know, I think of it as the, the affective... Um, aspect versus the effective aspect, where you know the effective is you're making someone laugh, but the effective bit is that you're kind of introducing a kind of a piece of logic or a piece of thought that's actually not very funny at all. and I think you can get um, another layer in there too. I, I, I've been thinking about the book um, Catch Twenty Two, which is a real classic, right? Um, it's a it's a satire of World War Two and the sort of insanity of war and the insanity of the logic of war and the procedural aspects of war, and it is really funny. Um, but it gets less funny mm. as the book goes on. Mm. Um, and partly the, the, the content changes a little bit. It, it does introduce some slightly darker material as the book progresses. Um, but nonetheless, there's still a lot of the jokes are sort of constructed in a similar way at the end as they are at the start. It's just that you know, what begins as a slightly amusing kind of absurdist comedy um, it it kind of wears you down and it becomes quite distressing, and you feel as trapped in that kind of, you know, those absurdities as the main character you're So, the, the book, the more that that, that style of humour is repeated, the less funny it becomes and the more kind of an, uh, sort of anxiety inducing it becomes. Mm, mm. So, I think you've kind of got that, that level with the, the, the target of the satire um, stays the same um, and the effective nature of it kind of changes. Um, so that you've kind of got, you know, another kind of logic where you kind of understand that the joke is supposed to no longer be funny. Um, so your relationship to the to the humour of the material, I guess, it changes. And I think it's a, you know, it's a hugely manipulative um, um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, book and, and very successful in that way. Like, it just, the way that it works on the reader is just absolutely masterful.
0: And it's an incredible, I really, like, in my head, I always like I'm always thinking about structure and like I'm thinking oh my gosh yes that idea I loved the way you sort of talked about the object of the satire doesn't change the um possibly the structure of the joke doesn't change but there is and is that word affective yeah the yeah, affective response the yeah. yeah yeah and I really I really I think that that just sounds amazing I also really appreciate you talking and I think I, I, I may be misunderstanding so stop me if I'm wrong but this idea of sort of retrospective structure you know like when a story isn't working and then when I'm if I'm writing something and something isn't working i often return to structures that I know like um the thing that I just wrote, I it, it wasn't working, so I looked at romantic comedy structures, and I was like, "Oh yes, the my meet cute is not secure." So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah I have don't know. You're in a secure <laughs> meet <meat-cute. laughs> me cute. But yeah, it just I really appreciate you talking about that because I think that often I think that structure is something that needs to be in place when I first write. Yeah.
1: It could be helpful I think But I think you start Wherever you need to start mm. and You just solve Whatever problems Come up next I think yeah. Oh that's be, yeah. such
0: a good Man That is such a good way Of thinking about it It's
1: one of the fun things With writing isn't it it's Sort of. There's no one way To solve anything
0: Yeah <laughs>
1: Sadly It would be helpful If probably there was
0: Imagine Imagine Um I think that you have answered this next question but it's sort of you might have something more to say about it and if you do that's fine and if you don't that's fine as well but just this idea about maybe there can be something quite serious about humour you know like I think we sort of often see it as light and frivolous but it sounds like it's been quite useful throughout this book to um, say something about something if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah absolutely I mean I think um, even outside of um, you know, categories like sort of satire. Where it might be a, something as serious as Doctor Strange Love, you know, for another sort of good <laughs> war satire. You know, I mean, even the I used to I'm a big Jim Carrey fan, or I have been since I was a little kid. Um, and you know, like the Ace Ventura films, you know, they haven't necessarily aged that well. Um, um, but uh, particularly, I think in the second one, like there's just some really great physical comedy that is just you know you laugh I- in a very instinctual way. But some of the targets of that comedy again are, are really, you know, uh, really serious, um, and and actually kind of handle some of its material quite well. Some of it quite terribly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, 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 yeah. Again, I just think most of the time comedy is doing something serious, mm. um, and the great thing about it is that it plants its ideas in your head. Um before you've even really had a chance to kind of think it through because your response is so automatic to begin with, um so it can it can be extremely subversive in that way. I don't think that's a particularly new thing to observe, but um it is one of the aspects about comedy that I think is really powerful um and makes makes comedy quite a um a potent tool to deploy
0: mm. Mm. It feels new and fresh to me like I hadn't thought about it that way um I'm going to... I really am going to segue a little bit, but I'm just thinking about um, there is... I think that it says it on the back of the book, so I don't think it's spoiling it. There is a time traveller in your um, book. Well, yeah. Yes, yes, there is. Is it all right? (laughs) Yes, Yes. Yes, yes. Um. And I just... It made me wonder about the idea of creating a character who has this view if you know what I mean like has a different view of time a different understanding of what is going to happen a different perhaps understanding of what has happened and I guess there's the idea that jokes are time bound but I think I I sort of want to leap from that and think about how do how do you create the psychology of a person that's had that I don't know like Anything you want to talk about in the development of that character? Because it is quite astounding to read. Yeah,
1: okay, yes. I mean, it's, it's not a spoiler at all, I, I don't think, because it, he, he crops up in the first story. <laughs> um, and he, I mean, uh, so he's a time traveller. He's, he's come from the, from the distant future, got sort of stuck in our recent past, um, and his time travel device remains... A bit buggy, kind of throughout the course of the book. So different things happen um, that sort of throw him into different time loops or into um, whatever. So, um, so he's kind of trapped here, and he sort has of has to make a home in a sort of time and, and space that he didn't really expect to have to. Um, and I, uh, you know, there's some details in there about the future that he comes from. Um, and it's not a particularly great future. It's a dystopian future. There's some jokes in there about, oh, isn't this all a bit dystopian? Um, and he just sort of says, yes, it is very dystopian. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but um, I like, I'm, I like the idea that that the future isn't so much about the future in, it, of, in and of itself. It's it's, it's about the present. Mm. And I think that's one of the things I like about science fiction is that whatever sort of thought experiments they're throwing up, whatever kind of predictions they're trying to make about the future, um, they're always kind of about the present moment or the moment of their own writing. Um, even if they don't know it, you know, they might be actually trying to legitimately seriously predict the future, but I think most science fiction sort of shows that it's not very good at doing that. Um, but it always tells you something about the intent of the times, the sort of obsessions of the, of the writer, and maybe their cultural moment or their political moment. Um, and so with this character, what they can do is bring... Um, a long view to the present and sort of say hey look you know um uh, you know one of the, the key examples in the book is is gay rights and and he can say look you know these rights are won and lost across the course of history don't take it for granted you know um there's that thing where even if something's enshrined in law you know i think in in this country we've got to a point where there are some. Some, some some rights that are reflected actually in law. Um but whether those rights are respected or not, um um at different levels of um, you know, the sort of the social milieu or, or, or wherever, um you know, is a different story again. Um and so he um he takes that kind of long view and just can sort of yeah, I guess uh, provide a perspective that that, that these things are, are, are you know are never over. Um, you know, as it is we're still turning a long corner with gay rights, let alone. Trans rights and other rights for the rainbow community, um, which are being trampled on all the time, um, yeah. So, yeah. So he can pose those questions for us in the now. Um, that was a bit rambly, but but um, I think that's the function that that future perspective offers. It's a que- it's a question for us in the moment.
0: Yeah, and just to dig into that even deeper, this idea that um, you know, like if if we bring this scientifical scientifically kind of theoretical these elements or situations or ideas the ways that they can add to us talking about now I think is really interesting and I just wonder if you've got anything like you you made a really good case for that in the last question but I just wonder if there's anything else you want to add around that um I
1: mean I love science, mm. um, but I'm not very good at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I tend to, like, in my, my, my reading and viewing habits, I tend to avoid the hard sci-fi, which is, mm. you know, like a physics PhD thesis kind of wrapped up in a thin plot or, or whatever it might be. That might be a bit sort of too derisive to the hard sci-fi um, category, so apologies. Um, but I do prefer the more humanist sort of style of sci-fi, where it's about um, telling us something much more about our human relationship to the world. Um, and I think... You know, from a genre perspective, I think the deployment of scientific concepts kind of adds a sort of veneer of legitimacy to that in some way. Um, But it's completely non-essential, I think. Um, I think one of the things that fiction is really good for is is, is dramatising questions and issues, um, without even having to be particularly polemical or, um, or anything like that. It just know, it's better at asking questions than it is at answering them. I think, um, and, and sort of adding complexity to a, to a, to a, um, to an understanding, um, through taking a dramatic lens to to a, to an issue. Um, and so, I think you know you can do that across a number of genres, and you can do that in sci-fi, and you could uh, tackle the same questions that you're tackling in a sci-fi story in a in a fantasy story. Mm-hmm. You can do the same thing with time travel as you can with with dragons, for instance, or, or whatever that device might be to explore the issues at hand. Um, some genres are better at Doing it, um, or might offer some angles that others don't. Um, but I don't think there's anything, you know, deeply intrinsic to one genre in terms of what what genre can answer which which types of questions, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. I um, I did a course with David Van years ago, and he always used to say how the romantic comedy is always about class. And um, I- every time I watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, Made in Manhattan is about how some people work and some people don't, and you know. Sweet Home Alabama is about how some people in the country are, right? Yeah, and I just think I just think you're so right. And I think that um yeah, I lo- I love what you say about the which I just been listening to a series of lectures about Ursula Le Guin and someone was talking about how the science and science fiction can be Psychology or sociology or anthropology—it doesn't necessarily have to be the physics—and and, and um, yeah, I just think it's really interesting.
1: I yeah. love Ursula Le Guin; she's <sighs> so cool.
0: I just the permission in the room that work makes is unfucking believable. Way
1: eh? yeah, I love her relationship to her own work too, like the way that she was always really open to revisiting her work, to critiquing her own work, to accepting critique. Um, yeah, there are some glorious moments where she's looked at, say, Left Hand of Darkness and the way that she used some gendered terminology there that was a bit contrary to the point she was actually trying to make. Um, but even with works like, you know, The Wizard of Earth, see, I think she at one point kind of expressed regret that she had written it in such a, a sort of masculine, kind of bardic um, uh, voice to begin with. And, and later in the, um, some of the, you know, the, from about the fourth book on in that series, I think she she took a different narrative approach but also a different approach to voice too. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very um, brave, seems like, to um, pat a word, but I think there's something very noble and very um, um, interesting in, in in having that uh, willingness to, to be um, quite open about your changing relationship to your own work mm. uh, and the things that you might have got wrong.
0: Because it is, I mean, that is one of the scariest things I find about writing is that it's it, it does become concrete in a way, but I think one of the things... That, like you were saying, one of the things I find so inspiring about it is that that concrete can be kind of, um, you know, got at again, which I think is an amazing thing.
1: Oh, t- totally. And I think I mean, writing's weird because it does it crystallizes a, a a point of view that you form mm. between two points in time, <laughs> and and it's a very messy experience between those two points in time. Um, but you're not the same person at the end of that process as you were at the start and the story by the time you get to the end might reflect that change in your own point of view on something but then it's not like you're frozen in time either like you you continue on beyond the story so that you're going to have that changing relationship
0: yeah yeah i really i really love that and i think this again is it really it really um reiterates that point you made earlier about how good fiction is at this you know like the reading process is such a bizarre psychological thing you know like um yeah, it really. I, I don't know if there's some. There might because we can never compare the insides of our minds. But like reading your book, there was this thought-changing, sort of perspective-changing thing that I think works like it do. Where um, I can be humming along, believing what I'm believing, and then there's something very. I don't know. I'm not trying to glorify writing above all other art form, but there is something about it because. It's a private thing, it's happening in my mind, or I'm listening, or however I'm doing it, that I think does have this ability to make me look at things in a different way.
1: Yeah, I think it's um, even one of the things I like about fiction is that it does issue a series of prompts or challenges that you can then, you know, you can have those arguments in your head and they can be messy arguments, and um, it gives you a permission to think about things that you might not have otherwise, or to, um, you know, to take a bit of an intellectual risk. Mm. Um, and then you know it'll uh, provide, I guess you know a story can be a kind of framework for for thought. So it'll you know you, it'll propose some questions that you can think about, but then give you some ways to kind of um, help step you through that that process too, and to test your thinking, mm. um, and to show some other ways of being or seeing or, or whatever it might be. Um, but that is one of the um, the great sort of uh, rewards of of reading fiction, I think, is that. Um, that kind of permission um, to explore new ideas with quite a lot of freedom, um, and to um, to just have some different sort of challenges mm. put down in front of you,
0: and that wonderful, like I, I um um. I remember reading Geordie Rosenberg once talking about how um, fiction and non-fiction aren't different in the way that they raise questions. It's just that sometimes fiction is less concerned with the answer to the question. And I think that there is a very different psychological kind of questioning that takes place when it isn't concerned and um and I guess you know obviously there are types of fiction that tell me exactly how to think but um yeah that I think with a work like yours there's this wonderful thing where um this kind of travel through these lives and even making that leap between one story and the next like that thing that I alluded to like that lack of connected tissue I wonder um I wonder if we could talk about the structure of the book like I guess I'm interested in all sorts of things um like I'm interested in the apartment as an ordering device for the book and I'm wondering about um, I think the question that I asked you when I emailed was kind of around rules and constraints and I don't know if that's a useful way to talk about it or if there's a better way for you to talk about the structure of the book
1: um Yes and no, so, I mean, so um, if you haven't read the book, um, you should go out and buy it and read it. Yes, definitely, um, please. <laughs> the, uh, we'll get it from the library. You will not regret it, Pat. Um, um, so it is, it is centred around an apartment building, um, and there are various characters that recur um, and different storylines that join up. The building itself you see change through time, too. You, you go back to a point at which it was a repertory theatre, mm. a later point at which it was a, um, a, a radio factory um, and so you sort of skip across t- um, time as well as um, space with it a bit. I mean lots of the stories are sort of set outside of the apartment building mm, too but mm. they, but they connect to a character who who resides there or um so I sort of um it was a really useful structuring device in terms of um, providing some cohesion to the collection allowing for some relationships to sort of um to, to be naturally formed across stories without kind of having to find some sort of extra dramatic reason why these two people might <laughs> yeah. b- bump into each other yeah. or say hello or know each other. Um, so, um, but I also was quite um, conscious that I didn't want to just lock every story into being part of that apartment building mm. and I wanted to take the reader into different settings into different environments and across different genres and that as well. Um, I mean, for, what, for me, one of the things I like about my book, if I can like things about my own book, is, is that you've kind of got this apartment set up um, and each story and each kind of apartment occupies a different kind of genre space um, and there is something in there that that to me feels quite true about life um, um, and that, you know, apartment buildings, communities, families they're all basically kind of, you know, um, patchworks of of um, of of views of of genres, uh, for want of a better word, you know, like the the worldview that I occupy is not the same as the one that that you occupy, um, but they coexist. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think that sort of that relationship, um, in a literary sense, does reflect kind of what we find in in the world. Um, yeah, I think I think for me, genre too is 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 it's a kind of statement about Things that we believe a world contains, and then some expression of that belief or that understanding. Um, uh, and so I think, you know, one story might be sci-fi, one might be magic realism, um, and that's sort of a literary kind of um, aspect to it. But you'd find the same thing if you know um, you lived next door to someone who was um, an archaeologist versus someone who was an architect. Um, and those two disciplines are going to give them two different kind of um, uh, perspectives on the world, different uh, knowledge sets, different tools for understanding the world. So, uh, yeah, I, I like that idea of, of, of having um, yeah, diff- different perspectives that sort of comfortably um, um, sit alongside each other.
0: Mm-hmm. And I just think um, I, there's one question I want to ask you, which seems um, silly, but were you always envisaging a book that um, sort of clicked together in this way? Or were you thinking at any point did these exist as, as very separate stories, not without the apartment or anything like that? Like, I'm just wondering about the creation of the stories.
1: Yeah, no, totally. The, um, there's an earlier version of the manuscript that has about about 20% of the book is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the version I wrote in my um, uh, MA year at the Institute of Modern Letters, Um And so, you know, my project for that year was writing these stories that do fit into this structure. Um, And then I got rid of about 25% of them, as I say, um, partly because some of them weren't so great and some of them just maybe tonally didn't quite fit overall or or whatever. Um, But that left me with something less than a full manuscript. And so over time I just, you know, gradually just wrote more short stories and without any kind of intention for them fitting into this manuscript. Um, but occasionally I'd write one and think, oh gosh, actually, if I make these three or four changes, this could be really suitable. Um, you know, I could uh, make this character relate to another character. I could, you know, these themes seem to be ones I'm returning to, so I could, um, you know, put that into the collection and there'd be this kind of embellishment that would be nice. Um, so, you know, I've, I've written a bunch of stories since that first manuscript, and some of them have been published, you know, um, um, on their own, as, in their own right, um, and some have been published as. as, as, as um, you know, precursors to this collection. So it, it's um, like I said, it's it's, it's a, it was a good structure for um, um, building some cohesion across the collection, but open enough that I can just kind of um, yeah, test material and see if it fits as I as I progressed. Mm. So it was quite a nice sort of um, sort of casual approach to sort of building out that world.
0: And was there a point at which um, this again, sorry, all the dumb questions today, but was there a point at which you had to think of it as Um, a hold you know what I mean like it does feel like that's what I think is one of the so successful things about it is that it does feel like it has a travel through the stories um, as well as you know this interesting juxtaposition of putting these stories together it does feel like there is a travel and I'm not sure it's temporal eh like it 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 doesn't feel like it starts in one year and ends in another it kind of does all sorts of interesting things as far as time goes throughout but yeah, I guess I'm interested in the decisions you made around ordering ordering it in the end.
1: it's a really good really good question. Um, a lot of it was sort of felt as much as thought, mm, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are some sequences of stories where there are the same characters recurring and they yeah. have to take place in a certain order. Well, they don't have to, but they work better if they do. Mm. Um, it's a bit more rewarding for the reader to say, I've met this character here, now I recognise him over here. Yeah. Um, there are also just some thematic through lines and some through lines that have to do with sort of imagery that sort of unfold in a natural kind of way Mm, mm. um the so there is you know recurring theme around gay lives um and gay histories um and you know you could order those three or four stories any way you like but you know, to open with the story that it opens with, where that sort of thematic is introduced toward the end of it, um, to have a later story that has the same characters involved, but there's a much more um, expansive investigation of the history of, of of gay lives in this country. You know, that's the right way around to go for those, for some logistical reasons, but as well, just just. F- in terms of sort of structuring an argument, I guess, for a, want of a better phrase. You know, you've got to, got to introduce your topic and then kind of introduce your examples and then kind of come to some conclusion at the end. And that seems like a bit of a dry way to sort of um, explain it. Um, but in terms of yeah, following some of those thematic through lines in the book, that is kind of the the very proximate sort of logic that it follows. Um, same with some of the images that are introduced too, like, you know, the, the first story introduces images around, you know, lightning and sort mm. of things that are coloured blue and so forth. And then they sort of just are allowed to recur through other stories. I think the first story and the last story kind of book into each other kind of nicely in that sense too. They're both stories that have to do with electricity in one way or another, whether it's in the sky or in the brain. Um, So there are little bits of sort of logical um, uh, um, structure to it that are there for the reader to discover. And, you know, there might be um, some incidental or accidental um, elements of that and some of them are more deliberate. But, um, yeah, hopefully it's one of the things that are rewarding about the book in terms of finding those connections.
0: It's one, like, it was one of my favourite things, um, and I think in the same way, um, it, it kind of, th- this, th- this was just my experience, but it kind of exercised the same part of my brain that I get enjoyment out of reading time travel things, you know, like that idea of cause before effect, you know, all those kind of bootstrap kind of things, like, the the act of reading it like um the first time I read it through I just sort of read it through and then the second time I read it through I was you know more aware of those little um hooks and eyes and you know zips and and I just thought there's something beautiful and rewarding about sort of saying oh yes the lightning again the blue again oh this person's name is mentioned and I know which you know I I can you know I'm building this it's just such a I think rewarding is a really good word like it, it feels like there's this building that happens in it that isn't a linear kind of building there's yeah like this I'm making emotion like it reminded me of the Lego movie where the master builders put things together I haven't seen it I need I, to it's a terrible thing to say <laughs> <laughs> but it just it was just this wonderful kind of chunk, chung 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 like it's just it's just such a magnificent book it's, it's just it's fantastic um one of the things that I also like this is this feels I don't mean this in a ha ha kind of way, but I was interested in kind of sitcom structure as far as it goes. You know, like I was thinking about the apartment and friends, and um, you know how that can go away from the apartment, but you know there is some kind of central thing there. And yeah, I don't know what I'm what I'm trying to say, but I'm just wondering about how you made decisions about how bound the stories would be to the apartment like there are a few where it feels quite tangential the relationship to the apartment but that might have also been more a feeling than any kind of rule that you set yourself probably
1: yeah i mean i think they are um like, Friends is an interesting example because... It's
0: always an interesting <laughs> <time>. <laughs> I, mean I used to it's watch
1: like it all the time as a kid. I have a slightly different relationship to it now, um, yeah. as I do with most things from my childhood. Bloody Ross. Um, yeah, yeah, Ross. I'm sure <laughs> there are things going on in that apartment building that if you'd put the camera in a different room for a little while, you would have seen some pretty odd, unusual things. I think Ross has probably had some weird stuff in the basement going on, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, did he even live there? I'm not, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think there's a really interesting idea around boundedness and containment that I think Charlotte Wood first introduced me to. She's a great Australian writer mm. but as um uh, as part of the MA year which she was a, um, a guess writer who came in and spoke to us. And about the the way that um containment kind of can build tension it you know it limits the options that characters have in terms of what they can do but it, um, it builds pressure um, it it raises the stakes basically. I mean I think that's really true for one-off stories. Um if you put um you know Uh, Two characters in a room and they can't leave Then something's got to happen Mm. Um, I think in a show like Friends Where it's, um, you know, the idea is it's repeatable It's a sitcom, um, the sets, you know, are are, are set Um, And so you still get the opportunity for drama there Where you've got, you know, these characters are going to bump into each other Perhaps in an an opportune moment and so forth But it becomes more about sort of pattern forming and repeatability And kind of, there's something sort of comforting in that, when it's a serialized program, um, that that's different, in and in a, like I say, in a, in a one-off story, where that containment might mean something quite different for the characters. Um, I mean, one of the things I really enjoyed was being able to take people outside of that apartment building, but also to kind of to trap them in there too. I mean, there's one story in which someone is literally entrapped inside mm. the building, um, but to have that kind of that freedom of movement that you don't have in a in a in a, 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 a sitcom, um, where you can you know place the camera or the eye anywhere you like and you can roam quite freely and you get um you know a very different perspective on what that community looks like by being able to do that um you know I think the perspective on the community that friends offers is uh, is <laughs> extraordinarily narrow mm. um and I think it's you know it's come under some deserved criticism for that um, um but you know that's one of the fun things with books is that it's completely free mm. to pick up your camera so to speak and, and place it somewhere different and somewhere new um so, yeah, um, there's something kind of energising, too, about those sorts of shifts, shifts in setting, shifts in sort of tone, shifts in genre, shifts in, um, you know, a character you meet in one story might be come off a bit differently in another story when they've seen from someone else's perspective. Yeah, which I think, you know, you can have a greater variety in style and approach in a collection like this um, as long as there are those through lines that help keep the reader engaged mm. in in this work that they've already made some investment in by picking it up and, and reading it. I and mean, partly I've done that through yeah, having storylines that connect up, having characters that recur that are rewarding to sort of meet again. I think there's kind of a, um, a sort of a consistent tone to it, even though it's skipping across different genres, mm, it sort mm, of mm, has, mm, you know, a kind of a um, a relatively consistent sort of voice to it, yeah.
0: And I think, you know, that stuff you're saying is so... Um I don't know like I got this vision in my head of sort of like riding a bike and playing violin at the same time you know like it, it is you know it's this it, it's it's and what I think is so great about the book another thing that I think is so great about the book is just that thing you described really well as sort of that picking up of the camera like it feels like it is playing this three-dimensional chess with um perspective you know and that um you know the the balance is so perfect between i know I know where I stand and I know who this person is, but this person could change at any minute, which I think is a really a really exciting thing about the structure that you've chosen that perhaps in um is not as easy to do in, say, a traditional kind of three act novel kind of thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to write a novel at the moment. I'm finding the three-act structure exceedingly (laughs) helpful because I have no idea how to write anything longer than 10,000 words. (laughs) So yeah, I think to your earlier question about structure, structure sometimes is a really good place to start if you just actually need something to hold on to.
0: I totally agree like I think um, when I first started hairdressing I had this boss who used to say you need to learn the rules and then you break the rules and I just I've carried that with me a lot and yeah I'm, I'm all for yeah like that three act structure also very I'm um, fond of that Icelandic saga structure you know two people want the same thing for different reasons yeah I just yeah I just think it's really useful Um, we are coming to the end of our conversation thank you so much for everything Um, and I'm going to ask you a question that I'm asking everybody I get to talk to this year um, and it is around how we sustain ourselves as writers um, and you can Take a pitch hit at this in any way you want to. However, you would like to um, like um, define the word sustain. And yeah, I just wonder um, how do we keep writing?
1: It's a really, really good question because it's hard. Mm, yeah. <laughs> the the question is hard, but the, but how we keep writing is it's it's difficult. Um, the biggest thing for me is having a good community of other writers around me. So I did the MA at the International Institute of Modern Letters uh, in 2017. As I say, more or less the same book then as it is now, with some changes. But you know, it's a, been a sort of a, a five-year journey to to get it from that first iteration to to the published book. And that you know, it's a, a hard five years. There's lots of ups and downs in that. Um, but the same group of people who were with me with that MA, you know, are with me now. We're, mm. You know, we're there with each other. Um, And some of us have been published, some of us um, haven't. Um, They're all, you know, without exception, enormously talented, wonderful writers. Um, And the level of support that we can provide each other through the the highs and lows, through the, you know, the periods where you're getting no attention, where you're getting too much attention, you know, all of that stuff. Having a group of people who you trust, who can, you know, who've got your back, who um, are going to come to your work with generosity and wisdom um, and kind attention... All that sort of stuff is just so important. I, I wouldn't have kept going if it wasn't for them, I don't mm, think. Mm. I and mean, I think you know, writing in itself is it's such a difficult process of learning um, outside of any kind of you know research you have to do for a story. I think what I find is that it, 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 you really do test out the capacities of your own mind and your own heart a, as you work through the material. Um, and having people who are wise and generous around you as you go through that is just extremely important um or I find it to be extremely important so I mean a shout out to that group too they're um they're such a great bunch um and I love I love getting to sort of hang out with them we, we still workshop once a month and that and um yeah
0: oh I love that so much like I think um I was just thinking as you were talking like there is so much to learn all the time like um I really I think you said it earlier that there's no one answer to every question that you're, ra- you know, one problem that you're raising in the story. There's no sort of one answer to it, and I think that the conversations that I've had, and you know, this is largely selfishly why I do this. You know, the conversations that I have about these problems, it, it's part of a really useful kind of lifelong education for me, and 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 yeah, I really like the way you've talked about, you know, the people I have around me, the writers and other people that I have around me. That idea of um, there, sure, there's the talking the hard tech about you know why this crisis point is not working, <laughs> but there's also the um, why did the story keep getting rejected? You know, like it's a really it's a really nice um, I don't know. Like I just think it's so true. I think it's so true. Um, do you write every day?
1: I no. Um, I've. Um, told myself off many times for not oh, writing no. every day um, do and that. just uh, yeah I eventually <laughs> learned actually don't worry about it I am really lucky I I, I, I work part time so I've always got at least one or two days a week where I can spend that on writing it was kind of a commitment I'd made to myself after the MA year I was like okay been a great year I'd love to keep the writing going very easy to fall back into old habits and mm. just kind of let this slip by the way mm. um, um but fortunately I've got a very supportive partner too and we can make things work so that I can have a day or two a week mm. um to myself to to do this mm. this thing and it's it's very luxurious and it's um not a uh, a situation many people um can enjoy for themselves. So I'm I'm very lucky. Um but yeah, that's that's how I make it work. I'm if I had to sort of squeeze in fifteen minutes before work every day, I just it would never happen. I would just be no. an exhausted wreck. I get tired really easily. So yeah. <laughs> just I, I couldn't sustain it.
0: And I think, you know, like I really um I think oh my gosh, I'm probably gonna talk out of turn. He can probably contact me. But um Branderman, I think talked about getting up ahead a of steam as well, which I think is really important as well. I think that um sometimes I can blah blah every day and it's just like Whereas, like, if I'm unable to write for a while, it does, I do find a sort of pressure that helps me to do that. And, yeah, yeah, I'm so, I always feel a little bit, like, I do agree that we are very lucky with the time that we get to write, but I just wish every human in the world could, you know, (laughs) like, have the time to do what they want to do. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it would be a richer place for it.
0: Yeah, this is why we need time travel.
1: This is what we need time for. One of the reasons why.
0: (laughs) One of the reasons. So many reasons. Thank you so much. It's just been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate it.